so this is an odd thing we do here at Prince of Peace. If you're visiting with us, special word of welcome to you. We're blessed to have you here. We like to just kind of set aside the regular worship order uh, on occasion and create some space to do some kind of public theology, just discussing issues of the faith uh, together. We've been doing it quite a while now, and, and every time we do, uh, we have some fruitful conversation. So I'm going to read, uh, a, it's kind of a devotional, an Advent devotional. is written by Kara Root, who is the uh, wife of uh, Andy Root, who's a professor and teacher and author uh, at Luther Seminary. She's uh, a pastor of her and own. She's right, pastor yeah. at uh, a Presbyterian Church, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in in Minneapolis. So, uh, and an author and just a gift gifted communicator. So um, she writes this lovely. She's really writing for preachers, but uh, it's in a theological journal for preachers. But I, I think it's a just a lovely way for us to kind of think about this season of Advent as we enter it together. So I'm simply going to read uh, uh, Pastor Carol Root's uh, words here. She writes, Advent is an exercise in paradox. For four weeks, uh, we stand and speak visions of peace and hope, hills made low and valleys raised up, lions lying down with lambs or swords beaten into plowshares. We read ominous warnings of the end and watch a crazy man cry out in the wilderness that salvation is coming. We pronounce beautiful promises to the poor and oppressed, and we center our worship on the ethereal concepts of hope, peace, joy, and love. And then uh, we get into, our people get into their cars and drive back into the swirling vortex of charity, drives, jewelry, commercials, consumer guilt, family pressures, and worries about money drowned out by tinsel, carols, baked sweets, and promises of incredible interest-free financing for 18 months. <laughs> and the words of peace and hope for an amped up and worn out world seem quaint and pretend not really real at all. I know what feels real. I can describe for you the smell walking through the mall, the taste inside my seasonal red Starbucks cup, the sound of the 24-7 holiday music stations and the feeling each time I hand over my credit card. And when I turn out on the news and see more war and starvation and sickness, and when I look into my own life and the lives of those I love and let myself notice all the brokenness and anger, the sadness and stuckness, I can even sometimes admit that there's an easy and sickly sweet comfort in succumbing to the holiday buzz. Where the perfect gift can heal the breach and the brightness of children in scarves and puppies in bows obscures for a while the darkness inside us and around us. And yet every week in Advent, I must stand and talk about this other reality, the one that's often hard to see and that we almost never touch, this reality of enduring peace and transforming hope the eschatological vision of rightness, this light that the darkness can never put out. Every week of Advent, we suggest that Christmas means something, and something is coming, that something 
changes at Christmas. And we use words like incarnation and salvation and sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And then we bless our people and send them all back into the real world. Advent is absurd. (laughs) It's utterly absurd that we talk about a beautiful, peaceful world of wholeness and harmony as though saying all of this makes any difference. As though Christmas really changes things. That God came near, God entered in, means everything is different, we declare. And sometimes we even believe it. But if we're honest, we will say we're still waiting. Waiting for things to be made right. Waiting for wholeness. Waiting for hope. If we're really honest, we'll talk about the darkness and not just the light. And our people need to hear us doing this or else we are collaborators with the retailers and feel-good spirit peddlers of the season who turn Christmas into a temporary antidote to our pain. Just because Christmas is coming doesn't mean cancer is leaving or deployed children are returning home for good or jobs suddenly appear and tensions between us disappear. The birth of Jesus doesn't erase the death of a child or the loss of a lifelong partner. And unless we say this aloud, unless you and I announce that Advent embraces these realities, makes space for them, and gives voice to them, our people will feel more and more alone and isolated right now more than any time of the year. And this is where Advent's absurdity is a profound and blessed gift to us. Advent is honesty. Advent lets us go to those places of waiting and unearth them, hold them out in front of us and cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. Oh, that You would tear open the heavens and come down. Because when all the rest of the world would rush us out of our discomfort and rush us into cheer, Advent calls us, keep awake, see the need, hold the sorrow, and sit in the waiting. God has come. God with us. At Christmas, we will celebrate this astonishing and world-altering truth. And because Christ has come, the end is written. Advent oozes eschatology. We are the people of the promise. We wait for its fulfillment. Advent commissions us. We hold the waiting for a world that so desperately needs saving. We hold the promise on behalf of those who feel forsaken and for ourselves and our own forsakenness. In Advent, we become, all of us, but preachers most of all, the voices crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. We declare that we cannot see or what we only see in glimpses Hope in the face of hopelessness. Peace amidst conflict. Joy in apathy. And all forgiving love. We preach it and sing it and live it like it's true because it is, even if we can't always see it around us. This Advent, let's make our sanctuaries the places where we stay and say it like it is where we sit in the darkness together 
and point to the light that is coming, already breaking through. Let's say, come Lord Jesus. May that be a real cry that means something to our world and our families and our own selves. Let's enter the absurdity this Advent. So we enter this short but very holy season of Advent, and it's a, a season where we get scriptures like the Gospel Pastor Natalia read, which have a kind of um, apocalyptic uh, flavor to them. Um, maybe this raises some issues or questions for you. Uh, we are aware that these uh, scriptures and these themes are all uh, set in the context of uh, the birth and life and ministry and death and, and, and resurrection of Jesus. So there is uh, always a, 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 a waiting, a preparation uh, to the season of Advent. Uh, both of us have said it's uh, one of our favorite church seasons as we kind of turn the page into a new liturgical year. So what's your favorite part about Advent? What's, what's, what's the great messages you like to share about Advent? And that... How is counter? How is it countercultural? I like that. That that one. <laughs> Chad really wanted a rapture question. You no, guys. No, that's great. <laughs> no. no, not at all. Uh, I love Advent. It's it is my favorite church season. I um, I think because it is an intentional slowing down in a time of year that feels so fast, quick moving. Everybody's getting things done and checking things off lists and running around and going to parties and getting family gatherings. And it just feels uh, chaotic and like a little high on sugar. And I feel like uh, Advent feels like a, a calming down of that hustle um, that I really appreciate. I also think there is um, to have that that balance of the hustle and bustle of this time of year with this four weeks of calming down. I need that reminder this time of year that saying no and waiting is okay and it doesn't have to happen now and we can sit and rest in the waiting um, is a good practice for someone like me who tries to make things done, uh, get done faster if they're not happening in the timeline that I would appreciate most. So um, it is a good practice for me to have this intentional time of waiting and preparing and what does that look like? Um, you know, we sing prepare him room. And so like, what does that look like in, in not just your house with your trees and decoration, but like, what does it look like to prepare yourself for the arrival of Christ? I think that's um, what I love most about Advent, that reflective time. Yeah, for sure. I also love um, the, the sort of earthiness of Advent and the, um, the room that Advent makes for kind of a, almost a Lent-like mm -hmm. darkness. There's, there's a contemplative nature to Advent that makes room for those for whom Christmas is not necessarily going to be the most joyful experience for one reason or another. Um, Advent kind of stretches out the, the Christmas experience to, to make room for folks who are, are struggling or suffering or fearful. The texts um, 
usher us into that space and the, just the feel of the season to me makes room for that reality. So I, I just love sort of the feel of Advent. Always have. I really appreciate it. And it comes and goes quickly, but um, it's one of the things I love about it. I've often wondered uh, how they decided about the ritual of the service at the different churches. I was raised Catholic, and we had the Mass. I came to this church and, and a Lutheran church prior to this one, and then I'm now in Florida, I'm going to a Methodist church. What? One of the <laughs> <laughs> they're cool, they're cool, it's fine, so anyway, cool. One of the, one of the uh, uh, <laughs> things that always make me wonder is the core service remains the same at all of them. How did they decide on which things to keep and which not to keep in the, in the service that we attend every Sunday? Yeah, it's a great, great observation. Um, some of the common elements of the worship flow, the liturgy, um, and then some of the ways that it's different. And um, on a large scale, most of the mainline uh, denominations um, they 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 kind of flow from the from the Catholic uh, Mass liturgy. So the elements of the of the gathering and the confessing and the and the giving and the gospel and the preaching and the sending, all those elements are are there. They might be expressed in different ways. Um, so most of the of the sort of what we'll call traditional worship of, of Lutherans, Catholics, Episcopalians, and, and, uh, and on and on, um, is attached to its origins, which comes from the very early uh, Catholic Church. Um, and then uh, all kinds of uh, adjustments and uh, changes happen on a local level, even on a congregational level. I mean, we make decisions in our traditional worship uh, here that uh, are different in other places. And so there are Lutheran churches who are still using uh, an earlier version of the, of, of the liturgy that appeared in one of the prior worship resources of the church, one of the prior hymnals. And so there are local changes, but on a, on a large scale, um, much of those commonalities that you experience are, are they, they have their origins going all the way back to the early Roman Catholic Church. Um, and that's true for the, for the Lutheran churches as well. Um, so I have a question about the Apostles' Creed. So when it says, um, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, why did that get changed from Christian to Catholic? Because it used to be I believe in the Holy Christian Church. Just curious. Oh. So it never really got changed from <laughs> Christian to Catholic. It always was Catholic. It got changed from Catholic to Christian. And the reason for that change was simply to try to not confuse people <laughs> as you have been confused. Sure, right. Yeah. So people are always, almost every time we do this, somebody has this question, in fact, yeah. which is, why do we say Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church? We're Lutherans, you know? And really, uh, uh, it's Catholic small c, as Pastor Natalia indicates. Uh, it's Catholic meaning universal, the whole Christian church. And so there was a time there when one of the favored translations of the, of the creed 
replaced Catholic with the word Christian just because it felt like more people would understand this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about St. Ansgar Roman Catholic Church down the street <laughs> when we say Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. We're talking about the Church Catholic, the Church Universal. And so there was an effort there to try and help people understand that by changing that language as other words and phrases have been adjusted in different translations of the creed as well as, you know, the Lord's Prayer and, other, and just Scripture itself. But uh, hopefully that helps a little bit. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> if the Bible were rewritten to a 21st century updated version, what changes would we see? For example, we're now living 40 years longer and people aren't getting married at 14 years old. Would premarital sex be one of the things that's still talked about? There's like a murmur in the crowd. Uh, I would answer, but I'm related to him, so I can't. I can't. Uh, <laughs> so I'll leave this to Natalia. Uh, thanks. Um, I think so. I, I will say this: that my 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 own stance on on this has changed over the years. I think purity culture in the church is dangerous. It is very bad for people. Surprisingly, when you like repress, repress, repress um, all of the humanity of yourself, guess what happens? Like people do really awful things. So, um, so I would say we are created, we are sexual in our creation, that is who we are. Uh, and I think um, expressions of that are not sinful. Um, I would say uh, I had a, a clergy person say to me a while ago that um, the only sex that is bad is sex that hurts another person. So when it breaks a relationship, uh, it is not good. So whether you want to take that to mean a relationship with a future partner, fine. Or if you want to take that to mean um, a relationship uh, with a current partner that's not necessarily consensual or there's pressure being um, put on a person, um, those things are not good. I would say those are outside of what what God would want for us. I think people who are committed and um, who love each other, who care for each other, who treat each other kindly, who are 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 committed to each other, I think I, this is not, I don't necessarily know if the church whole would agree with me, but um, I think it's about a broken relationship and not necessarily about like repressing who you are and the expressions of how we are created. Um, now, I'm probably gonna get lots of angry emails and phone calls for that one, but I also feel like we just have to be very careful about what we teach about purity. I used to teach purity stuff here also uh, in this place, and I think it has done some damage to people. I think it's not okay to tell people that if they go this far, they're fine, but if they go one step farther, they're going to hell or whatever, they're a bad person. That has done lots of damage to people, and I think that is just not okay, and I think any time the church tells somebody that who they are is not okay, we are doing damage to people. And so I just want to be very careful about how the church talks about um, this thing, this sex stuff, because it's very important that we don't teach people that their internal person is bad or who they are or how they are is somehow then not welcome in the church. And people have, 
left denominations, left communities, left youth groups, left lots of places because they have felt like, oh, I went too far with another person who I love, therefore the church will not accept me. And I just think that is the wrong, always the wrong message to put into the world, and I will push against that message. Um, I think it is much more important for us to say, whoever you are, wherever you are, you are welcome, you are loved, um, no matter what. And so uh, that can be said on all sorts of issues where people feel like they, they've done a thing and they can't come back to the church. And I want to, I would say that's one of my obviously soapbox issues uh, where I want to make the church a place for people who feel like they have maybe been told they're not okay are, are not told that here in this place. You know, there's a, obviously there's a whole spectrum of perspectives and a, a really a question uh, was would the Bible need to be rewritten to, to, to accommodate sort of current realities? Um, and that's a broader question uh, uh, that, that really um, speaks to our approach to our understanding of Scripture. There's all kinds of stuff in the Bible that we, you know, we would currently find contrary to just regular human experience or even acceptable behavior. You know, consequences of uh, wearing uh, of, of woven fabric and all kinds of really weird stuff that we find <laughs> in in Scripture. So we we have an approach to this to this Word of God, which is living and active, and, and it continues to be a norm for our lives. And that approach is to uh, to hold in context God's compassionate love for us in Christ Jesus. And, and to find people for whom uh, the world has said, you are outside of the, of the parameters of the, not only the faith community, but just of, of decency. You are, you are somehow, as a person, uh, uh, you're not worthy. And, and, and so we are, our call is to, is to, we are bearers of the good news, the gospel message that you are in Christ, chosen and redeemed and loved and we really really mean that there there's not a way for you to wiggle out of that good news that <laughs> i bear um you can tell me yeah but you don't know this is i'm this or i'm that and i've been told this or that and then i just have to say it better than i said it the first time <laughs> i have to say it louder and all of that comes from our uh, god's self revealed to us in christ in the in the scriptures um, and so we interpret all of uh, all of uh, the of the scriptures uh, through the lens of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So um, we're aware that uh, there there is a condemnation built into a certain strain of the Christian faith that has driven you know, young gay teens to, to suicide at an alarming rate or whatever category of people you want to name. And we just need to say we stand with those kids and not against them as people of God. My question is about the concept of hell. And um, is what are your thoughts about hell? Is it a place we go after we die, like heaven is a place we go? Or what about the idea that we create hell right here on earth and that's what hell is? Yeah, I th I th <laughs> that last part I think is <clears throat> entirely uh, the case and often the case. Um, the whole 
construct of the uh, kind of, I'll say, a theology of hell uh, that we kind of carry around with us because of um, Hollywood. What's that? <laughs> Hollywood. Yeah, Hollywood mostly, <laughs> and just kind of common, the, you know, theology is this picture of this, you know, burning cauldron, lakes of fire, and whatever. However, you might picture this place that the people are sent to uh, for a variety of reasons. That that. That whole theology doesn't come from Scripture. I mean, even the language of hell or Hades really refers to a location outside of old Jerusalem where, you know, there were smoldering um, garbage piles and, uh, you know, so the, the whole history of the concept of this hell as we kind of commonly have been led to understand it by, you know, little pamphlets that people hand to you or wherever you got this, <laughs> this picture is not biblical. Nobody can say, see, here's where it's this, this concept of hell is developed in the Scripture. So it, it's, it's really a, uh, a semester-long answer to, to get into the, uh, the origins of this. But the idea that um, hell is not so much um, a place you're trying to avoid ending up in for eternity as it is this kind of present reality for so many living today and, uh, and a kind of going through life without an awareness of the presence of God, a God who is for you, not against you, a God who claims and chooses you, not stands ready to judge and condemn you, that this is uh, this kind of a separation from the knowledge of, of God's uh, Good news through Christ is, is this is you know a way that I would describe my sort of conceptualization of, of hell. Uh, you know what what is it like to face your own end, or to go through something so treacherously difficult as you are losing someone dear to you, or whatever the case might be. What is it like to go through that without knowing that this compassionate God goes with you? That Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you might be also. That there is no dark room you can go to where Christ isn't already there, present with you and for you, saying, I'm going to see you not only through this, but through all of eternity. This is good news, and anything short of that or, or that doesn't, doesn't include that, that's, that's hell, that's Hades, that's that smoldering garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. So... There's a cartoon version of hell that we feel like as Christians we probably should have some concept of, and I'm just saying to you, that came to you from somewhere other than the Bible. Yeah, and I think there, it's important to be clear that hell and judgment are two different things. Um, I think we often assume like anything bad sends you to hell, uh, and I, I think it's important to... So I, I also fully agree with what Chad is saying. The what we think of as hell, I just don't think it's a thing. It's not a thing. And I, uh, but I do think we, at some point, come face to face with God, and we answer. We answer. I think it's sort of like, um, <laughs> in a dumb way, think about when your dog has done something bad, and they look at you with that shame. You know what face I'm talking about, where they're like, oh, really, and they just can't even handle it because they love you so much, um, and you love them, but you're disappointed or think about it like a kid or whatever where you don't stop loving them when you're 
telling them what they did was wrong. I think we, we talk about in our creeds, in our systems, in our theology about a judgment where there is a moment where we come face to face with God and we answer for what we answer for our lives. And I think it's not that God looks at you and says, well, you on Tuesday, March 27th, you you know, didn't let that person park in the spot that you were going to park in and you drove in there really fast even though they had their blinker on and then, you know, like all that stuff. There's, it's, I don't think that's what it is, but it's a, it's a recognition of this is how I reconcile my sort of universalism with what I believe um, about bad people still needing to answer for the things they've an they've done, right? So I look at somebody who I think is unworthy of forgiveness and I say, well, it's just not my place to judge, right? When I say that, it's giving that, even though I really like judging people, um, but it's, it's giving that to God to do and saying that God will make the judgment over that person, whatever that will be. I don't think that is hell because I cannot imagine a parent a person with a heart looking at somebody and saying, no, never mind, not for you. Because I don't think God does that. So um, I don't know. I mean, the answer is sort of, a, again, like a, I have preached on this recently, the, the when people ask about heaven, I'm like, uh, I, I sort of feel the same about this. Like, I don't know what that looks like, but I don't think it's what we picture as hell. I just don't think that's a thing. Um, I have lots of people who very much believe what you believe, that this is hell, <laughs> that we're already in it, and, we, and our job is to um, be the kingdom of God here where, this, where we already are, where we currently are. Um, I don't know. I don't know what I think about that either, but I, can, I think what you need to believe about hell, whatever you need to believe about heaven, go for it. I'm always like, whatever you need, uh, I just think... If the purpose of hell is to scare people into belief, then it's not, then, I, then that I think is not okay. Just, just as we started. We end as we begin, which is <laughs> the purpose of, uh, of, of God, of Jesus, of Advent, of where we are in the church, of our role in the world is not to scare people into belief. I think that's a false belief. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brian Bashan. Um, last Sunday, we, what you said it was Christ the King Sunday, and it was proclaimed by Pope Pius in the yeah. 1920s. Yeah. And so at some point, all the denominations must have followed in line behind that proclamation. So my question is, how does that happen? And then if that happened today with the current Pope, do you think the Lutheran Church would fall in line or push back? <laughs> That's a great question. Yeah, you asked me that last week, and I thought it was a great question then, and if I was smart, I would have <laughs> Done researched research. it in case you showed up today. It's a great question, because, I yeah. mean, I get it when it's ancient proclamations from the early church, and, uh, and as the ref, you know, prior to the Reformation, for instance, and then the ref, you know, then we sort of carried that forward, but this was not that long ago, I think is the yeah. point, and, and so why did we embrace this, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a really good question. There is, outside of our, our, um, an, our you know, triannual church um, assemblies where 
big issues might be voted on, and I don't know if it you know, happened at some ver earlier version of one of those where we looked at the Pope's proclamation and the Lutheran Church said, we, we really we appreciate this and we, we'll adopt it as going forward. I, I'm not sure why on such a late, yeah. uh, relatively um, proclamation of a, of a liturgical day, a festival day in the church, that the wider church, well past the Reformation, embraced it and celebrates it. Um, you know, most Lutheran churches celebrate Christ the King Sunday. So all of that is a long-winded way of saying, no idea, great question. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, think, uh, I will, I will try to find out. Yeah, I, so the rest of the question, what if the, the current Pope yeah. pronounced some festival Sunday um, would the church pay any attention to it or just say, that's the Catholics again? I don't know. I suppose it would depend on the proclamation. It's a great, it's a great question. I really... And part of that, I mean, they, they put it into the lectionary. So our, our, we follow this thing called the Revised Common Lectionary. Many denominations do. Met the Methodists follow the lectionary. Um, Lutherans do. Presbyterians do. Uh, lots of lots of lots of Protestant denominations and the Catholics. And that was put into the lectionary. So we could choose if if somebody in charge of the lectionary was like, we're adding a new festival day. We always have the choice to not follow the lectionary. We've done that before over the summer when we do maybe a series instead. Um, any church has that ability to follow or not follow those things. We're not going to get in trouble if we don't do Christ the King Sunday. Um, we're not going to get in trouble if we don't do Advent one or two or whatever. So I think um, it is part of that, that lectionary that's set in front of us and we get to make choices. Um, I think there are, there are probably some, some proclamations that the Pope might make that we would, that we would fully agree with. Um, I don't know how it happens, how it no, gets I, in the lectionary. I don't know how that happens. No, right, but, but the lectionary a... committee is an ecumenical committee, so this is probably where the answer lies. In There's a real strong ecumenical um, collaboration and cooperation that happens in the last, you know, 50 years uh, and, and even prior to that, but my guess is that it's part of that cooperation and collaboration in putting together the lectionary, yes, but also in other ways. The Lutheran and Catholic Church have come to joint agreements and proclamations on saved by grace through faith, for instance, and other big uh, ecumenical proclamations. So I think it's probably likely that it was within the context of that ecumenical work, a cooperative work, that we came to agreement that, yes, uh, Christ the King Sunday seems to be a, 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 great, a great fit for everybody, and we agree. Um, and that was likely how it would happen or not happen going forward as well. Yeah. Good point. See that? That's why we do this. We got, that's got to be, uh, I mean, I'll confirm it, but I think we found the answer right there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, they did that, that committee made choices about the Advent colors, so the pyramids, which most of you don't notice, but um, un until they change, you might notice that they're, they're blue now. They've changed to the Advent color, which is blue. Many years ago, it used to be purple for Advent, and they would use the same color for Advent and Lent. It was kind of a, uh, they th thought of, as Chad said, as Pastor Chad said, a little Advent felt like a little Lent, so they used the same colors on either side. But then there was um, the committee kind of decided together we want 
uh, Advent to be different because it is different than Lent. It is sort of similar, but we want it to have its own thing. And so they intentionally made the choice to move the color in Advent to blue versus purple. So that's why um, you'll still see some churches have purple Advent candles or they'll still have purple pyramids over this time because they maybe didn't change out their pyramids or add blue to it. But there are all these decisions kind of made like Pastor Chad said, very in community with each other and, and uh, across denominations, kind of deciding together to do a thing. And I think, when else does that happen, you guys? <laughs> My gosh, that a group of many different denominations sit around a table and make decisions. I think anytime that happens, like we should celebrate, yeah. celebrate that because that doesn't happen very often. <laughs> For sure. All right, one last question we can get in here, I think. I'm going to piggyback on this. Um, what should our attitude as Christians be toward non-Christian religions and toward those who embrace them? It's, and let's think in the context of Advent. Yeah, I, I mean, I would hope our attitude, our countenance would be humility. You know, I would hope that we'd be interested in what makes them tick and, and uh, what, what it is that you know, brings meaning to their lives. And, and we, I think as Christians, um, should have a posture and an attitude of listening and learning um, way before we decide it's time to say anything. And, you know, whether it's in indigenous tribes in East Africa where I find myself quite a bit, um, where they have some belief systems that are wholly different than mine, or whether it's uh, somebody who attends a neighboring congregation here in Brooklyn Park, I would hope that humility would be the foundation upon which we interact with people. And if it comes to the point where they want to know what I think what my faith teaches, and I get the opportunity to tell them that I believe that God and Christ really loves them, cares about them every bit as much as I believe God through Christ cares about me. If I get the chance to somehow articulate that reality, then I will humbly take the opportunity to do that. And with no no molecule of my being subversively trying to threaten them to drop their pagan ways and embrace my understanding of God. I have what I believe to be very good news that I would like to humbly share with them that is God in Christ and this babe in the manger and this son of man and this crucified and risen Savior, that, that this God is, is going out of God's way to get to them so that they might know God loves them. Uh, and I believe that is the most powerful and compelling uh, good news on the planet. And it's, relative, it's, it's relevant here, it's relevant there, it's relevant then, and it's relevant now. And whether or not the, the current iteration of, 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 the, of the 
of the mainline congregation continues to exist in the ways that we've appreciated and experienced, uh, that's, a, that's a whole different question. Okay, I've been holding this question for five or six weeks when you preached, Natalia. Uh-oh. And it has to do with prophecy and prophets. Okay. And you said this lady you quoted was like a prophet. And I got to thinking about that. I thought, well, all prophets in the Old Testament were pointing towards Christ. Then Jesus came and he said, I think not that I come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. What is a prophet going to tell me today that I don't already know from Jesus? Um, so in case you missed that, it was, what is a prophet going to tell me today that I don't already know from Jesus? It's um, a great question. I think uh, prophets are truth tellers. Uh, they aren't they do point us towards something, but they are often truth tellers. So they walk into a place and they speak a word of truth to a group of people. In the, in the Hebrew scriptures, that is often, uh, we, we sometimes interpret Hebrew scriptures to be about Jesus, but that's not always why they went into those towns. They went into towns or groups of people to to say, like, the way you are treating this group of people is not okay. The way you're doing this is not okay. This is this is a word for you from God. Um, I think now we continue looking for that. We look for people who speak truth about how we treat people. Uh, and I think that's a really um, a good way to look. I think people ask, we, I just saw, and I've been off Twitter for a week because I took a little break, but the last time I was on the Twitters, somebody asked, um, who is a modern-day prophet? And I was kind of watching that. Who do you think is a prophet today? And the answers are just beautiful, but... I mean, I, Barbara Brown Taylor to me is a prophet right now. I think she, what she speaks is truth and it's beautiful. Um, I think there are many prophets that are speaking, trying to speak truth into a, into a world that needs it, that is thirsty for something true. Jay has a follow-up. Uh-oh, watch out. So then I would say you and Chad are prophets by what you said. Well, thanks. But that's dangerous because prophets are treated pretty poorly, so yeah. I don't know. Well, at the same time, we're set free from Christ, right? And that um, Oral Roberts or, or that guy on 700 Club, they claim to be prophets, but it isn't always the truth. You know, so I'm just, I was just curious. I, I'm satisfied without a prophet or a prophecy. I'd like to come and hear the word, though. Yeah, I think lots of people like to be called prophets. Uh, or they like to call themselves prophets. I would say first, a person who calls himself a prophet, I would be like, just very suspect in general. Uh, but I think, uh, I feel like I'm repeating myself, though I forget that this is a different group of people in a different service. But at the last service, we talked a little bit about um, how the, the good news is always preached to those who, who are on the outside first. And so... If it's not good news, if it doesn't bring people in, then I would hesitate to call it good news. In fact, I would call it not that. We talked a lot at the last service about how uh, the Word of God is not meant to scare people into their belief. And if it's scaring people, then it's probably not the, the, the Word they need. So I would say, in terms of prophets, looking for people who are who are preaching news that is good for everyone, particularly those who have been excluded the most. So I, that would be a, a lens I might use for that, for that distinction. Do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I would just, you know, beware of people who are making a claim that they are a prophet. That's always a, a, a 
caution. Um, and for me, I, I, again, when I think of modern-day prophets or people that I would consider to be prophetic voices, if we want to use it that, that mm-hmm. kind of language, are people who sort of drive, point me in the direction of service to, to those in need, point me in the direction of faithfulness in a way that I can't ignore by virtue of the integrity of their own lives. So I look at people who are living in such a way that well before I hear them speak anything, they, they have integrity on, uh, on serving the poor or those in need or have given of themselves in such profound ways that I can't ignore their call for me to engage in a similar way. Those are prophetic voices to me. Uh, and they can come from almost any, anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know how that exactly relates to our idea of the sort of old-timey biblical prophets, <laughs> other than, you know, there is a sense by which that, that's, uh, in, you know, what they were up to in, in many, not all cases, you know. Um, you know, it's good to think about prophecy and you know, that it's more than simply predicting the future or saying what's about to happen, but it's a uh, you know, pronouncement of God's presence among the people. I have a Christian uh, friend who is the father of two daughters, and one of those daughters died of a drug overdose this year. And uh, one of the things he said to me was, uh, she was saved, and I can't find anywhere in the Bible that says you become unsaved. Would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, you would need to have a conversation, I mean, to know exactly what that meant to him and what it means to be saved. You know, what, what, what saved um, is, is fraught language. It's loaded. So um, generally speaking, it comes more readily from a, a, a conservative um, theological perspective that speaks in terms of you know, saved and damned, and and uh, um, and then you you know you get into how that salvation moment is marked. Was it? Uh, are we confident she was saved because of some decision she made along the way, or some set of behaviors that she exhibited in this lifetime? What you know, what we would have to say to a, a person in that circumstance, we, we would intentionally stay uh, miles away from that kind of language because in the end it's law and death not life and grace in the end you have to have some set of criteria by which you have decided somebody has been saved and what we would point to at a time of such profound loss is a God so compassionate, so determined uh, for us to be in God's eternal presence that God in Christ would suffer and die, take upon Himself our brokenness, our lack of faith, our lack of understanding, our misbehavior, our sin, all of it, like one giant black hole of grace. Take all of it and die with it and then give us back His own self, His own living self. Give that life to us. That promise of life over death, of resurrection over dying, of, of forgiveness over sinfulness, that has nothing to do with some concept of you know, saved or damned. It's 
other than that. It's, it's not even related to that. So I hope there's comfort in, for this father and some idea of a gracious, loving God that holds his daughter after her death. And I, and I hope for everybody else, those of us in our pilgrimages, yet as still by faith, that we are aware of a, of a gracious God holding on to us in our baptisms if we've been baptized, a gracious God in search of us uh, in, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that when we talk of salvation, we talk of a one-way street, God coming to get us. That's what we, we are waiting for and preparing for. That's what the incarnation is all about. A God who chooses to dwell with His people uh, so that He can wipe away the tears and He can be our God. And I, and I, I, I just want to always say, um, if, if we are saved, it's because of what God and Christ has chosen to do in spite of any inclination of our own. So, I don't exactly... I'd have to... <laughs> I, 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 would, I would want this father and everybody who loved this girl to know that. I believe God loved... Whatever love you've mustered up for this one, it, it, it is a, an echo, just an echo of God's love for that child. And if, if you want to fight about whether or not that same God would banish somebody to eternal damnation because they weren't saved, giddy up. <laughs> Let's fight. <laughs> That's what the church is about. That's our fight. Our fight is with those who would uh, claim that there's some standard that must be met. Yeah. Uh, to what extent uh, should church leaders endorse specific politicians or policies or party? Or dun, dun, political dun. party. Excuse me. We've been waiting years for a politics question. <laughs> Nobody ever asks one, so good on you. Um, well, I will say, to retain our nonprofit status, we are not allowed to stand in the pulpit and tell you who to vote for. That that's not, that's against the rules. But Chad and I are humans. Uh, pastors are people too. And we do have opinions on political candidates. And we are allowed to have a person we campaign for or vote for or whatever out in the public sphere. We are just not allowed to get up here and say, everybody on Tuesday, go vote for this candidate. We're just not allowed to do that. And if a pastor is doing that, you're definitely breaking the law. But oh well, apparently we don't care about that anymore. <laughs> um, uh, and I would say for both of us, um, I, Pastor Chad, maybe you can give this speech because it's been kind of, it's been about three and a half years since I've heard you give it last. But um, Pastor Chad has a very good Sunday before election Sunday uh, election Tuesday speech he gives about not making that as Christians we are called not to make a political choice on behalf of ourselves and what we want and what we like, but reminding ourselves that our vote matters because we are making it on behalf of people who do not have a voice or who are left out or who are on the outside. So our political choice is based on our Christian values. And, and if you say you are voting a Christian value, then here is, what that, here is what we believe that means as people of faith. And so it might be in my best interest to vote for um, an upper middle class white person. Um, but if that person, or vote, and I'm voting as that always because that is who I am, but, but if I can't 
put myself in the, in the place of a person who is poor, not white, uh, left on the outside very often, then I, I don't think we are doing our due diligence as Christians. You know, politically speaking, our, you know, that's, that's my perspective. Is, um, and I, it, it does drive me crazy <laughs> that this is not, it's not even the case that's made to us in public as to you know, why I should vote for or support one candidate or over another. It, that the case that's always made to us is it, this is why it's in your best interest. This is how, well, how it will benefit you. And all I've ever wanted to say to us as Christians, as Pastor Natalia has articulated, is you know, we're not called to vote in our best interest. That's all. You can work that out. Um, my, some of my closest friends in the world are far pegged to the opposite end of the political spectrum for, from where I tend to be. Uh, it's not about that, uh, but, uh, but I, I do think it is about, you know, ignoring the chatter as we approach uh, election season um, <laughs> that, is, that is trying to convince you uh, to, to advocate for yourself all the time. To recognize your own privilege and your own place and to approach this part of our civic duty, this part of our life, with the same um, call to faithfulness that we approach our, our faith, which is, you know, for as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me, our Lord says. So that's the call uh, in a nutshell. Earlier this year, I heard a fact that's been kind of a thorn in my side, uh, that despite all of our Minnesota nice and our relative progressive sort of political situation, that Minnesota actually leads the nation in the disparity between white and black high school kid education or a graduation rate and also home ownership. Uh, so what are we doing about that as a church? What can we do that about that? as a church. Yeah, Minnesota is the worst. Don't we love hearing that? Again, it, it comes down to um, the choices we make and how we make those choices for our best interest or someone else's best interest. So when people choose to not send a child to a community school um, because of that school's resources. It actually removes resources from that school. So when we keep making these choices um, and we segregate ourselves more and more, uh, then we tend to take resources away in that way. As, as, as a church, as Christians, I think it is, it is, our, it is our call to advocate for people who do not have the resources we have and and recognize that that is not because you individual person are racist it it is because the system that we live in benefits white people and the system we live in does not benefit people of color and that goes all the way back to when they were brought here against their will so we can go through this longer. This is like a, like Chad said at the first service when somebody asked a question about 
heaven and hell. Uh, this is a semester-long answer um, that, that we are, you know, have to make shorter at this point. But um, there is work to be done for each of us individually, and then there is work to be done on a systemic level. And I think um, both of those are necessary, and there is some recognition of us as people of faith and what we do individually and as a system that we can have, that we should be having, I think, uh, and that the church is having. I mean, I think at our um, church-wide assembly that recently happened, they, they did a big uh, commitment to reconciliation uh, and reparations, which I think is a, a step one uh, in, in moving forward. But there is some conversation happening, and I am happy that um, Lutherans, by the way, are the uh, whitest denomination in all of the denominations, so there's a good place to start. Um, and we can have some conversations about what that looks like and why that is. And I'm happy to have those conversations. Yeah, those, these kinds of things are, um, the, they're difficult if you say, what, what can the church do is on a local congregational level? Some churches are positioned uh, and connected in ways that are able to make it part of their sort of um, engaged local ministry to, to be involved in sort of social justice, community, housing, these kinds of things. Um, if you back up a step, the Lutheran Church in the Minneapolis area, for, for instance, has social justice uh, table of, of, of leadership and uh, the ability for congregations to sort of pool people and resources together to Im have impact locally and beyond. And then the church at large, the ELCA in the country, has strong Lutheran advocacy ministry um, uh, organization that, that is an opportunity to get involved as individuals or as congregations. I get the emails all the time, uh, and I'm constantly emailing wh whichever um, official or government official or, or um, you know, state senator, whatever the case might be, um, on behalf of uh, issues that the, that the Lutheran Church is advocating for. Almost always it's due to food insecurity or housing or those types of things. So um, on, a, on, a, on, on these various levels, there are, uh, the church is engaged. It could always work harder, and I, each of us can um, find ways as individuals to, to see how we might connect with those. Advocacy is a word I've always loved. I mean, advocating. I mean, I, I am one who tends toward anger on things. And uh, I, have, I have asked myself over the years to not, not try never to direct my anger on behalf of myself, but to, to direct it on behalf of somebody who otherwise wouldn't be able to voice a concern in the way that I can from my privileged position, whether it's by virtue of my vocation or just who I am. Uh, if I can if I can direct my anger to help this person who nobody's listening to, then I think that's at least better. This gospel, this precious gift of great price is ours uh, to carry around with us and see when we might get the opportunity to share it. So let that be um, our Advent hope and call as we move toward the coming of the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm.